Our text today is Revelation 2, 8 through 11. John saw a vision that Jesus gave him in the book of the Revelation. And that vision was of Christ walking in the midst of seven burning candlesticks. And as we've seen, these are seven churches in the book of Revelation that are described as candlesticks or lampstands. And each of these churches uh, being symbolized as a light reminds us that our church, and you and I collectively as the body of Christ, we are called to be a bright and shining light, are we not? That is what we're called to be, and there are characteristics, some good, some not so good. Uh, There are some challenges that each of these churches represent. And so what we're doing is we're learning the lessons of the lampstands, and we're endeavoring as a church, as a community, to keep shining for the glory of the Lord. So the last time we were together, we looked at Ephesus, and our challenge was to keep loving. Ephesus was a strong church outwardly, but they had left their first love. They had failed. They had stopped loving. And so last week, we were challenged that above all, we need to love the Lord Jesus with all of our heart. Well, today, we have a very different church, and it's the church at Smyrna. And the church at Smyrna is the persecuted church. If you look at the map that we have, just so everybody gets a sense of where we're at, You'll notice the first church is Ephesus, and the letters would be delivered to Ephesus, but not too far away to the north on the coast was the very prosperous city of Smyrna. This was a particularly wealthy city. It still exists today. Ephesus is really reduced to ruins, but Smyrna still exists today. My understanding is it's home to about 200,000 people, so a good-sized city, but in the day in in which this was written, it would have been a very, very prosperous city. Great riches, great industry, commerce, trade, all of those things. But Smyrna, as you're about to find out, the church at Smyrna was a persecuted church. While they lived in a place of abundance and prosperity, the experience of the local church was very, very different from that. And they faced severe and intense persecution. Look with me at verse number 8 of Revelation 2. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Back that up again. Look at the end of verse number 10. Be thou what? Say it again with me. Be thou faithful. Keep the faith. Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh, remember in each church there's a message given to overcomers. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help today. Lord, I understand my inadequacy today to speak on this subject. Lord, we've faced so little opposition, never mind persecution. We're thankful for that, Lord, but I know that for me, persecution is just something that I read about or hear about. So Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to listen to your Holy Spirit, listen to the Word of God today. And help us to prepare our hearts. Help us to seek to understand what your children face today and what we could be called to face in the future. So we just pray that this would be a meaningful time because because you meet with us. So help me as I preach the message and please help us as a church as we receive the word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
You saw that statement there in verse 10, be faithful unto death. That was a reality. That wasn't just a song that they sing, that they sang. There's the, the old hymn, Faith of Our Fathers Living Still, and in that hymn, we will be true to thee till death. And for, for most of us, those are just words in a song or things that we read about or hear about. But for the church at Smyrna and the Smyrna church that exists today, because the Smyrna church is all around the world today in these places that we've already been introduced to, those are real words. And that's a real, that is a real consideration of their hearts and a real prayer, Lord, allow me to be faithful even unto death. And that's the church of Smyrna. And there are only two churches of the seven that no, no word of rebuke is given to them. One we'll see later is the church at Philadelphia. But the church at Smyrna, there's not a single thing that the Spirit says to that church to correct. It's just encourage, 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 strengthen. Do you think that the church at Smyrna was a perfect church? Do you think that they had every, every dot uh, and every little bit of their theology perfectly correct? Probably not. But there's just a special, there's a special dispensation, I believe, given to the persecuted church where God's grace and mercy and love are poured out on them. And in fact, you'll go to places around the world today and there'll be Christians that, that they, they may come from different denominations or they may not line up with every belief of doctrine as we would understand for the Scripture, but they know the Lord Jesus Christ and they've been called to suffer for His name. Listen, we'll see uh, as we study the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights that they go to the front of the line at, at the gathering in heaven. There's a special welcome for those who give their lives for the gospel. And so we see that represented here in what the Lord writes to the church at Smyrna. Interestingly, the word Smyrna means myrrh. I don't know exactly why, if this was, if maybe a lot of spices were traded at this port, uh, but myrrh, as you know, is a spice that would give off a smell. And many people have pointed out that just as myrrh is crushed in the hand of the holder and gives out a beautiful fragrance, many have said that the church at Smyrna crushed in the hand of the persecutors, let out its beautiful fragrance to the glory and honor of the Lord. It was Tertullian, one of the early church leaders. He lived from 155 to about uh, to the mid-200s A.D. He would say this, and many of you are familiar with this quote, but Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the story of the early church growth was not the story of the church growing in prosperity, but it was the growth of the church in persecution. You can read the stories, and I, I, I could, we could go on and on. If you have any of you have read Fox's Book of Martyrs, or at least part of it, yes, and I'd encourage you to do that. Pick up a copy, and you'll read about the young women who were brought into the Colosseum. And in the Roman days, these young Christian maidens were brought into the Colosseum, and they were placed in the center of the Colosseum. And as the lions were unleashed or, and, and were heading toward them, they sang out with as what were described as angelic voices of praise to the Lord. And Roman, Roman citizens with bloodlust and hatred and anger and hostility for the church watched as week after week, month after month, and year after year, and decade after decade, century after century, Christian men and women gave their lives joyfully, many times singing praises to the Lord as, as the, the beast came and devoured them. And as the Romans watched that, rather than stamp out the church, as Tertullian said, their blood, the blood of those martyrs, was the seed from which the church grew. It was Polycarp who was the, the, the disciple of John. John the Apostle, Young man was born in, I think it was 62 AD. His name was Polycarp, and Polycarp studied at the feet of the Apostle John, the, the, the very next generation. And historians quote him as an old man. He was given the chance, because he was so old, at the very end of his life, he was going to be executed for his faith, 
And because he was so old, the, the Roman official decided that he would try to give him a way out. And he said, to, he said to Polycarp, if you would simply recant your faith in Jesus, we can, we can, we can forego this execution. And Polycarp said, 80 and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. And he was put to death for the faith. But again, these are not ancient, these are not ancient, just ancient stories. These are situations that are happening today, to this very day. Well, if you follow on the inside of your handout, I want to just say, where does this come from? What is the source of this hatred? What is the source of this persecution? Why do Christians around the world, why are they facing such hostility? Well, Jesus explained it to us, and we'll take a minute and and look at this. You see, the book of Revelation, this is certainly not the first time we hear of persecution. It's, It's all throughout the New Testament, but Jesus introduced it. And in John 15, as he's in, John 15, Jesus is literally in the very last hours with his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. They're having the last supper. He's washed their feet. They're talking. He's telling them how he's going to leave. And here at the very end, Jesus says, these things I command you that ye love one another. Now, this is interesting. Before he tells them about the coming persecution, what does he tell them they need to do? Love each other. He says, guys, there's 12 disciples there. Guys, I'm going to give you a commandment. You need to love each other. You need to love each other. Well, why? Because look at what happens next, verse 18. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. The source of persecution is not hatred for the Christians, but it's hatred for Christ. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also." But all these things will they do unto you, would you read it with me, for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin, but now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. You see, Jesus came as the one who loved like no one has ever loved, yet he came, and as he displayed love to the world, the world responded in hate. And lest we think that we are better than others, we need to understand that the Bible teaches that we, as human beings born in our sin and born in our disobedience, we are born into this world as the enemies of Christ. That's what the scripture teaches, that we're not born into this world the friend of God, but we are born into this world the the enemy of God. And it's by God's grace and his love that he takes those of us who used to be enemies and he makes us his children by his grace. And that's why we're called to even love the persecutors, which is amazing. Jesus would also say to love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. He says to bless them. It was the great persecutor who came, became the great apostle, Paul. But this is the source of this persecution. So what then is the message to the persecuted church? What then is the message to the church at Smyrna? First of all, the message is this. You can find hope in the person of Jesus. You can find hope in the person of Jesus. Notice with me verse number 8. In verse number 8, 
to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now we know Smyrna persecuted suffering. We, we read about it. What is the first thing that you want them to know? Jesus says, well, tell them something about me. Tell them something about who I am. These things saith, and the first way Jesus describes himself is what? These things saith the, the first and the last. He says, I am the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works. The message is this. The, the, the message comes to the church at Smyrna, and Smyrna gets the message. Who's the message from? Who sent the message? It's from the one who is the first and last. It's from the one who was dead and is alive. It's from the one who knows your works. He has a message for you. And I don't believe that it's an accident the way he is described. In the Ephesian church, to the, to the letter at Ephesus, he's described as the one who walks among the candlesticks. He knows what's going on, Ephesus. He knows the real deal, what's in your heart. But to the church at Smyrna, he's the first and the last. He's the one who was dead and is alive. He's the one who knows your works. What is this? Now, I want you to see here, I, the Bible teaches that when believers face persecution, when believers face persecution, they share a special connection with Jesus. Did you realize that? When believers face persecution, they share a special connection with Jesus. Peter would write about this in 1 Peter. But in Philippians 3.10, Paul described it this way, that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That sounds good so far. I'll sign up for that, that I may know him and, and the power of his resurrection. That all sounds good. But then he says this, Paul says, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He describes this unity with Christ that would come through suffering. The believers through the ages that have faced persecution and faced suffering for the name of Jesus, they share a special connection with him. And so he tells them who he is. First here, he says, I am the first and the last. What is the significance? We saw this in Revelation 1. He is the alpha and he is the omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the first and the last. This speaks of Jesus as the eternal one that he is actually without beginning and he is without end. He is eternal. And I just can't help but think that those who are going through, through persecution, who are living in these moments, you see, God lives in eternity, but you and I live in time and space. And in this time and space, the, the suffering that they face can feel as if it's without end. But Jesus says, listen, I am the eternal one. That in the moment, in the time that you're in, I am one who is eternal. The eternal one for the ones who feel they can't go on. I, am, I was dead, but I am alive. He is the resurrected one for those who face death. That this, the death that they face is simply the door to the resurrection. And then he says this. I, at the beginning of verse 9, I know thy works. I know he is the understanding one for those who feel forgotten. I read something this week that shook me a little bit. It made me think of this the persecuted Christians in a way that I never had before. How many of you have followed the story the last few years, the story of Andrew Brunson, who was imprisoned in Turkey? If you know who I'm talking about. But we'll talk about we talk about persecution, and Andrew Brunson was arrested after spending 23 years ministering in Turkey. He had a church of he had a church of just a couple of dozen people. And one day the knock came on his door after he'd been there all that time, and he was arrested, believe it or not, for being a terrorist. And they took him away, they took him to a detention center. You've heard the stories, right, about persecuted Christians who talk about the, the sensing the presence of God in their, in their persecution. How many of you have read stories like that, that they just suffered and they were going through it, but they knew the presence of God? But for Brunson, listen to what he said. He was recently interviewed. He spent two years in prison 
And thankfully, our government under the, the last administration worked to help secure his release. But he was interviewed by Open Doors recently, and, and he said this, my two years in prison were marked by what I would call the silence of God and not having any sense of his presence. Not what I expected to read. He's walked with God for years. I expected to read, for those two years in prison, I suffered, I, I, I went through I, I went through so much, but I, knew, but I just sensed the presence of God. But he doesn't say that. He says, I felt alone. Because, he says, my two years in prison my, were marked by what I would call the silence of God and not having any sense of his presence. Because my past experience with him was really rich, to have that intimacy removed led to a fence around my heart toward God, woundedness. I was the only Christian in prison, and the only Christian I had any contact with throughout my two years was Noreen, that's his wife. I was very alone, isolated in my faith. I prayed for peace so much. I did not feel much peace. Grace was taking me through, but finding strength, determination, peace, and joy, it was actually much more difficult than I expected. I didn't feel people praying for me. I had grace, but it was an unfelt grace. My first year in prison, think about that statement right there. My first year in prison, I broke repeatedly. They asked were there specific times that were harder than others. I had a number of bad ones being thrown into prison for the first time. I'd been held in detention centers before that. Being in solitary confinement was very difficult. When I went on trial, that was initially very difficult. The first year, especially, is when I broke physically. I lost 50 pounds. I broke emotionally. I went into that spiritual crisis. Still, I had this desperate need to know that people were praying. His wife joins in. Each time we met, he said, are they still praying? Because it would be natural for people to move on to the next crisis. So that was something he kept coming back to. So they asked him if he saw the, the, the results of the people praying for him. Well, in hindsight, it's clear, but I began to see it in prison. I didn't know the numbers of people praying when I was in prison. Noreen started to hear that people were praying in a number of countries. We saw that something unusual was happening. I came to see that during my imprisonment that actually God was using this to draw in prayer for Turkey in an unusual way. In 2009, God had said to me, prepare for harvest. I came to see that being in prison was part of that assignment that just by being there, I was the lightning rod that was drawing people, or drawing in prayer that God wanted to use for the region. I came to see that over time, but it did begin to worry me that I was more valuable or useful to God in prison than out. started to understand that maybe this was God's calling for his life and wrestling with that. See, we, often I've read the stories of the people after they've come out of it, but this man is describing what he's going through in the midst of it. Now he feels that God has abandoned him, but then he knows that people are praying, and then he says, well, what if God wants me to stay here? How will I do it? How will I do it? These are the people that the Spirit says, keep the faith. Be faithful to me to death. The first year was a breaking year. I broke thoroughly, repeatedly, and then God rebuilt me. One of the things I believe he really wanted to do in me was show me how to devote myself to him and be faithful in the absence of feeling his presence and the normal means of encouragement. You understand? If you don't feel it, will you still be faithful? Even if I don't see his love or faithfulness, even when I don't have his presence or his voice and I don't feel any grace... Am I going to be faithful to him? Am I going to embrace him? In spite of my circumstances, in spite of feeling abandoned, 
Am I going to be faithful? He goes on, and I won't read the rest of it. You can look it up and read his interview, but he goes on to describe a discipline of dancing. You say, well, dancing doesn't sound very disciplined. Each day in his cell, he would make himself worship God. And he felt that he needed to do it physically. So like David, in his cell all alone, he would dance before the Lord for five minutes a day to say that even if my soul, even if, my, my, even if I don't feel it in my emotions, I know the truth of God is there. Listen, friends, we don't always feel the presence of God, do we? And we don't face situations nearly as dramatic as he does. And we should be, in, if, if we should be challenged that if a man can, can be in the worst of circumstances, I don't feel God's presence at all, but I know his presence is here. Even when I don't feel it, I know that it's here. And this is the one who in verse 9, Jesus says, I know thy works. I know what you're doing. And he says, you can find hope in me. You can find hope in the person of Jesus. The next thing I'd like to show you is as we go further into verse 9 is he prepares the church for persecution. In verse 9 he says, I know thy works, tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Jesus told his church what to expect. Every Christian, every Christian should be prepared for persecution. Right? And it's not something that, it's not something that I, that any of us should wish upon ourselves, but there's the sense as you read the Bible that we should understand what the persecuted go through, we should pray for them, and then you and I also should examine our hearts and say, Lord, at whatever level of persecution I may face, am I prepared for it? Do I understand what you may have called me to? We live in a, we live in a day when people get on television and write books, and what they say is, if you'll accept Jesus as your Savior, then your life will be wonderful. You will have plenty of money, you'll be healthy, you'll be healed, you'll have all of these things, you'll do well in your job, you'll have a perfect marriage. But to the church throughout the ages, the message has been, if you accept Jesus, it might cost you your job. If you accept Jesus, it might cost you your wealth. If you accept Jesus, it might cost you even your health. If you accept Jesus, it may even cost you your family. That's the message, that's the message of the cross. But winning Christ is greater than losing all of those things. I just feel like a hypocrite even saying that. Because I don't think any of us can prepare, can, I don't think we can, we just haven't experienced it to have the right to even say it. Right? Because still in America, it's still true. The freedom that we have in this country, we have the freedom to exercise our faith to live out biblical principles. And if you do that, our whole, we have this inherited Christian culture. People may not name the name of Christ, but the whole system of government, economy, culture is all built on this Christian foundation. So we're able to live out biblical principles. And if you live out biblical principles in America, you'll probably get a little wealthier. Not guaranteed, but you probably will. If you live out Christian principles in America, there's a good chance that your family will be better. Why? Because it's like, you know, I did this for you, God, so you do... No, it's because we live in a, in a Christian culture still. We have this historical, this historical lineage that we walk in and we enjoy the fruits of our forefathers. But that's not been the message of Christianity throughout the ages. It's been, come to Christ, it will cost you dearly. And we're only now starting to see a little taste of that in America, in the smallest sense. We don't face persecution, but we can face a little embarrassment. We can face a little criticism. We're only, we only have the, the tiniest experience of that at all. But he says, listen, to the church of Smyrna, he says, I know thy works. Isn't it amazing that they're still working? They're still working. They're still doing everything. Now, there would come a time where the church literally, literally had to go underground into the catacombs. And they would live among the dead, the, the, the underground burial graveyards in Rome, the catacombs. And they would live down in there. Generations, children were born in the catacombs. Their, their family would go out at night to, to, to scrounge for, to scavenge for, uh, for, uh, for food. And then they would come back. 
The people born in the catacombs died in the catacombs. But, but at this point in Smyrna, they still have the opportunity to serve. And they were dedicated that no matter what the situation, they would serve God. They'd serve no matter the opposition. They would work for the kingdom no matter what they faced. Let's be honest. We have a little trouble in this generation just lining up our schedules to enable us to serve God. Whereas the previous generation, or the Smyrna, in our, in the, the, the Smyrna generation today, they serve in the face of, of death or hostility. I know thy works. He says, your tribulation. They'd serve no matter the situation. They'd persevere, press on through the pain. And then he says, I know your poverty. And I love the parentheses. I know your poverty, but you're rich. But you are rich. Rethink, he says. This is something that I was challenged with. Rethink your view of riches. He says that, that and, and as they looked around, and as a, as a Smyrna believer, you lived in Smyrna. Think about this. Smyrna, as we described, was a prosperous, wealthy city. What kind of things would you see? What kind of things would you see as you walked down to the port? You'd walk down to the port, and you'd see the ship owners trading their wares and coming away with bags of money. You'd see the parties and the celebrations. You'd see the people all around you living it up, everything that the Roman Empire in its height had to offer, and you just lost your job because you wouldn't worship the gods of Smyrna. You just lost your job. Your family disowned you because you wouldn't bow to the idols any longer. That's what they faced. But he says, don't walk with your head down. Walk high as if you're the richest man in Smyrna because you have the Lord Jesus. You are his. Paul would say, I know both how to abound and I know how to be abased. Some people are called to abound materially. Some are called to be abased, to have little. But Paul says, I know how. Are we prepared for that? And, I, you know, it doesn't do us any good to look at this and, you know, develop some kind of a guilt complex, like, oh, you know, we have so much and we feel so guilty for it. No, it's more about rethinking how firmly you hold on to the things you have. The Lord's given. The Lord can take away. And as Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not what you have, as, as I understand it. It's how holy, or sorry, how tightly you hold on to what you have. Because this church had to let it all go. I, I, I would venture to say that some of them had a lot of money before this. They lived in Smyrna and they had to let it all go. But they're still rich, Jesus says. I know your poverty, but you're so rich. And then he says, And I know them which say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. What's he talking about here? Listen, not only had their community betrayed them, but the religious world of the day had betrayed them. They, they said that they were believers. They belonged to the Jewish synagogues. Judaism was allowed to still exist at this point. And these people, some of these would have been Jewish believers. They had been rejected by the very synagogues that they used to, that they had formerly been a part of. And he says, be ready to be betrayed. Be ready for this to happen. Now, so we've thought about that. And the point here is to prepare for persecution. How many of you have heard people lately in the United States talk about, well, persecution's coming, dark days are ahead, prepare for it? How many of you have heard that kind of talk? Okay. Yeah, I hear it quite a bit. So, is that possible? Absolutely. Should we prepare for it? Absolutely. It's not here yet, though. Let's remember that. We don't face it yet. We should do everything we can to protect the, the First Amendment. We should do everything that we can to ensure uh, liber uh, religious liberty. We should, we should stand for those things. It's a great gift that we've been given. However, listen, the, the, there's one thing Jesus told his, I read it earlier, there's one thing Jesus told his disciples to do as he prepared them for persecution. Do you remember what he said? 
He said, love each other. Love one another. Love one another. These things, we read John 15 earlier, these things I command you that ye love one another. And then he said, you'll be hated of all men for my name's sake. The the number one way, and, and I'm afraid, and I just fear that Christians are becoming divided over foolish things today. And what's happening is we read about things on the news, and whether it's mandates or masks or whatever, each person has to be fully persuaded before God and in their conscience about what the right thing to do is about. Don't you believe that? I mean, that's biblical. The the Scripture tells us how to deal with meat offered to idols and make these things and let every man be fully persuaded. We have to be persuaded. You and I will give account for God personally about these things that the Bible doesn't exactly tell us what to do. And there's Christian liberty, and Christians have a conscience before God. But listen, friends, we don't have the luxury in the day in which we live for the church to be divided over these things. We, we see the church in America, the church in America, the church in the West is not growing, but it's getting smaller, and we are called to be a light in a dark day. There may have been a time where we had, a friend of mine puts it this way, he says, there was a time where Christians, there were so many of us and so many different types of us, we kind of had the luxury of arguing over silly things. But those days are gone. We have to take seriously the command of Jesus that said, love one another. Whether it's another brother within my church or it's another church, Christians need to love each other. That's how we prepare. We we uh, We don't fracture. We don't split or splinter. We unite for the glory of God and for the advancement of the kingdom. In fact, John 13, 35, Jesus said this, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Is that what the world sees in the church today? I'm afraid what I've seen in in the church, not our church, thankfully, and so I, 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 and there are many churches where this hasn't been the case, but I have personally observed churches that got through the COVID, the initial phase of COVID, and then began, and literally, I know, I know of churches that have had serious splits over things like masks and mandates. How does that fulfill what Jesus said here? Right? I say that not to, to, again, not to correct anything here, but just to help us to be on guard that one of the tools of the devil is to bring disunity in the body of Christ. But Jesus, in fact, you could read in John 17 that Jesus prayed, Father, may they be one even as you and I are one. That the church must be known for our love, not just our love for the world, but our love one for another. That same person I quoted at the beginning, um, Tertullian, from the second and third century, speaking, he wrote a book called Apologeticus, and in the earliest days of the church, when in the thick of the persecution, I mean, in the very thick of it, in the days of the catacombs, he said of the Romans, look, they say, how they love one another, for they themselves hate one another, and how they are ready to die for each other, for they themselves are readier to kill each other. It's a challenge for the church in prosperity and the church in safety for us to say, yes, the days of persecution may come down the road, but how do we prepare? We get better at loving the church. We get better at loving one another. He says now in verse number 10, he teaches how they can be fearless in the face of death. Look at verse 10. In verse number 10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. In verse 10, what was the phrase? How did he begin? He says what? Two words. They are, you got to help me out now. The first two words were, fear none of the, fear none, fear none, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't have fear. Now, you and I would think, Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. Because just like in the movies, when it seems like all hope is lost, when it seems like there's no chance you're getting out of it, at the very end, what happens? Somebody swoops in, saves the day, 
and what looked impossible, there's going to be, there, there, you're, you're going to be rescued. So don't be afraid. But that's not what he says, is it? He says, fear not and face your coming death with courage. That's the opposite of what we're accustomed to. Not fear not because rescue is coming. He says, fear not because I'll be with you in the darkness. He said, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Don't be afraid when Satan attacks. He says, you may be tried. Don't be afraid when trials come. You'll face tribulation for 10 days. I don't know what the 10 days signifies. And people have, scholars have debated what is the 10 days. I think the message here is this that there is a determined period of time that God will allow this to go on, and it won't go any further than he allows. In other words, when everything seems out of control, God is still in control. It's going to last 10 days, but it will not last shorter or longer. It will not last longer. God says, I am in control. And he says, be faithful unto death. Don't be afraid, he says. He's with us. He's with you, Smyrna. He's with you, Smyrna, even in death. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 19 and 20, speaking of this very thing, but when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. But when they deliver you up, take no thought, I'm sorry, verse 24, it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. He says, in that day, Smyrna, in that day, believers that are facing persecution, you don't need to think, well, what will I say? What would I do in that day? He promises that in that last day, God will give you the words. God will give you the courage. God will give you the strength. Do you think that those young ladies in the, that are written about in the Colosseum, do you think that they planned, all right, what song will we sing? When they got there, the Spirit moved among them all and put the, the words and the notes, the melody in their voices, and they sang before the Lord. And then the great assurance, the promise to each church is also unique. In verse number 10, it says at the end of the verse, Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of of life. The crown would be, if you think of the Roman days and if you think of the Greek days, you think of the runners in a race, they'd get done with the race, they're victorious, and they would stand before the cheering crowd, and whoever was the, the president of the festival, of the, what would he do? They would take that wreath, that crown, they would take the victor, and they would crown him. The race is finished, and you are victorious. You see, he says, he that overcometh, the ones who overcome, the overcomers, they are the ones that are going to receive a crown of life. You see, it's always been heaven that's the great hope of the church. It's always been heaven, not here, heaven. Not now, but tomorrow. Not today, but the future. That has always been the hope of the church the church triumphant, that though the church may look defeated today, though the church, the world may feel and the devil may, may, may think that it can mock and scorn, it will be the church that has crowned the victor in the end. Just as Jesus was on the cross and he'd been beaten, he'd been mocked, he'd been scorned, he'd be re been rejected by the very ones that, that he'd come to love. And as he's there, as he's giving his life, he, the, the devils and the demons, they mock. They say, we've won, we've killed God's son, we've defeated him. But it was on the third day that the real truth of the story emerged when Jesus rose from the grave and he was victorious and he defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. You and I, we share in his resurrection. And whether we live a prosperous life and die old and, and full of goods and, and happy or we die in suffering, we come out on the other side victorious. He says, I'll give Smyrna, think about the crown. Think about the crowning day. 
he that overcometh. Verse 11. He that overcometh. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now the end of the verse. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. No fear of death. No fear of hell. Eternally secure. Eternally secure. Jesus told a story about this. Some of you remember it. The rich man who had everything he needed, and he persecuted the poor man whose name was Lazarus. But in the end, in the end, where did the rich man end up? In hell. Lazarus ended up in heaven. It's an illustration of the same, that, that the world system and the, the, the system of darkness can, can live it up, can live any way it pleases, and can mock the church of Christ, can persecute the church of Christ, but they should fear the second death. Not just the death of the body, but they should fear the death of the soul for eternity in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. This is the second death. But for Smyrna, there's no fear of that death. They are eternally secure. So what do we take from all of this? Well, we take the message, we take this message that Christians, you and I, be strong and keep the faith. We should prepare our souls for potential persecution, but more importantly right now, we should be praying for those who are already facing it. Love the church and cling to Christ what you and I can do today. What can I take away from this message? I can say I can love my brothers and sisters here and elsewhere more. I can cling closer to Christ. I can shut off the media and the, the, the influences and I can cling to Christ and love my brothers and my sisters. But if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're a believer in Jesus, you don't know for sure that you belong to him, are you prepared for death? It's one thing to have your whole life, your whole life planned out for you. But Jesus said that these believers who it looked like their, their life in this world had fallen apart, but their eternal life was completely secure. It would be a tra tragedy to have this whole life figured out, but have, no, have, met, have made no preparation for eternity. Do you know Christ as your Savior? We have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I want to continue that thought as we come to a time of prayer. Is there anyone here this morning, or maybe you're listening to this message online, as, you, as we think about these Christians who are willing to, to pay the ultimate price to follow Jesus, do you know Jesus? Think about the level of love that they have for Christ and to understand. See, this, isn't, this wasn't their religion. This was their relationship with Christ. Do you have that relationship with Christ? Has there been a time in your life that you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior? If not, I want to invite you to do that today. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He did not promise that your life would be easy if you accept him. You may, there may be some who would mock you or some that would think it's silly or foolish that you would believe in Christ. But he does promise you forgiveness of your sins. He does promise you salvation from hell. He does promise you a home in heaven. It would be worth losing everything in this world if you could gain Christ and his salvation. If you've never received Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. Just in your heart, pray to him. Say, Lord, please save me from my sin. I believe I'm a sinner, but I believe you died and rose again for me. I trust you as my Savior. If you've never done that, would you do that today? Right now. Christians, as... The instruments play. Let's take some time in prayer. Pray for your own soul. Pray for your own life that you'd be that that we would love each other, that we would love the Lord. And let's take some time this morning to pray for the persecuted church around the world.
Lord, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your presence in our lives. This morning we pray for your church, your church in North Korea, your church in Iran. Pray for the church in Egypt, Afghanistan. Pray for the church in China. Lord, we pray for the believers in Myanmar. Pray for countries that I haven't named, Lord. I don't remember them all, and I should. But we know that right now that we pray for Christians that have already met in secret today. God, we pray that you give them courage. We pray that you give them strength. Lord, we pray in your grace that those who feel like like Andrew Brunson felt. They don't feel your presence. Lord, we just pray that today that you'd give them that gift, that they just not know your presence. But Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus that you'd give them a, a supernatural sense of your presence today. God, we ask for their children. Lord, we think of boys and girls that have been separated from their parents. We, we pray that those, those children who haven't been saved yet, that you would, you would make a way for them to hear the gospel. We pray that you'd reunite them with their parents. Lord, we pray for churches that have been broken up. We, we, pray, for, we, we pray for them to find new places to meet. Lord, as they share the gospel and they, there's people they, they don't know if they can if the person they witnessed to would turn them in, I pray you give them discernment and wisdom as they share the faith, as they evangelize. We pray for, for Christians, for, for new believers that are making the decision, Lord, to, to either follow in discipleship or to turn back to the world. Pray that you keep them strong. We pray, we pray for pastors with, with such a task to lead against the law. God, we pray that you give them great courage and boldness. And then, Lord, we pray for those who will die in the days to come. Lord, we, we, we look forward to heaven. And God, we just stand in awe of your grace and of their testimony. So we pray for them this morning. And we pray for us. We have so much, Lord, but help us to be grateful. Help us to be devoted. And help us to be surrendered, to live for you no matter what the cost, to give our very lives. Lord, they, they, they serve you in in poverty, but we serve you in prosperity. May our lives be worthy. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your Holy Spirit that unites us all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.